Well, here we are in the second in our series on holiness. Today, we're going to be looking at holiness and the problem of sin. My name's Greg. Why don't you join me in prayer as we approach God in his holiness in his word? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and thank you that it speaks the truth to us, even when it's hard to hear. Help us to hear well. Help us to listen with soft hearts to what you have to say so that we appreciate who you are and who we are and what it means to be holy in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by reading some of the verses from the passages that we read um, before in this, uh, in this service. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, envy, lewdness, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a person unclean. Then Romans 3. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Those two passages that we read are just confronting, aren't they, as you read them and as you dwell on them. In in these verses, we see a portrait of the human heart, of who we are as people, of the human condition, and it's an ugly picture indeed. It makes you want to turn away from what you see. How do you feel when you read those verses and reflect on them? Do you feel confronted by what it says? Do you feel a little bit squirmy? I'll tell you what, these aren't the first passages I would go to uh, in talking to someone who wants to find out more about God. And if I'm honest, I'm tempted to feel a little bit embarrassed by them. They just seem to go a little bit too far. At least that's what I'm tempted to think. No one does good, like not even one, that we're worthless, that we're full of evil and every sort of depravity, as Jesus says. Are we, are we seriously that bad? What about the good things that people do, both Christian and non-Christian? I'm a, I'm, I know I do a number of these things that Jesus lists. Guilty as charged, but I also do good things too. We have a profound capacity as humans for, for love and care and kindness Okay, so so maybe as we've seen the riots in America unfold this week and and what some of the bad things people do, like the the killing of people, of that policeman, in those situations we see the ugly underbelly of humanity, but it's not always like that. But this is God's word. And this is God's assessment of us. and, And this assessment is something we can't just brush under the carpet. No, no. Today we'll hold up the mirror that is God's word and have a good hard look at ourselves, at humanity and the deep and profound problem of sin. And it's not going to be easy, but it's good and vitally important. 
Last week, in the, in the first in our series on holiness, we came face to face with God in his own holiness, in his godness, in his power, in his purity, in his glory and justice and wonder. And we saw that face to face with God not only means that we come face to face with who God is, but we come face to face with who we are in his sight and see the rank ungodliness of who we are. And it's into this space that I want to spend some time today, in the presence of God, seeing our unholiness to the core. We need to see this reality of our sin and what it is and what it does to God and how we try to excuse and minimise it if we are to appreciate the true nature and importance of holiness and the struggle it will be. So I want to take us back to the problem of sin, the start of this problem of sin, to Genesis 3, to three things to see the truth about the nature of our sin, to see the ways that we typically respond to our sin that we see illustrated in Genesis 3, and also to see the way that God responds to our sin. Genesis 3 is such a profound part of Scripture. We didn't read it, so turn it over. Um, The passages will come up on the screen, but it's good to have it right in front of you. In Genesis 3, we learn so much in this short narrative about what sin is this entry of evil into our lives and our world. Sin, one of the things we see about sin in this passage is sin is breaking God's commands. God gave this command to Adam in Genesis 2. He said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of it, you will certainly die. It's a clear instruction. And when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in Genesis 3. They knew full well that what they were doing was disobeying God's word. And this is probably our most basic understanding of what sin is, breaking a law, disobeying a command. But there's so much more to this thing called sin than just breaking a command. So let's continue to look at Genesis 3. Sin is also an act of distrust in God. So Satan starts to tempt Eve by sowing a seed of doubt in her mind. Did God really say... He says, but in the second temptation, as the temptation moves on, he moves to questioning the motives of of God and who he is. He outright denies what God says. He says to her, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. How is he portraying God to Eve? Satan outright contradicts God's word. He makes God out to be a liar. God is not out for Adam and Eve's good. God is the one who keeps good things from them. That's how he betrays God to them, and they buy it. But think about what God has done for Adam and Eve at this point, to this point in the narrative. God has generously and abundantly provided for them in so many wonderful ways in the world that he has made with beauty and splendor and food, and beauty, and wonder. He has given them the profound position of responsibility of being his image bearers in the world that he has made. But in sin, we say to God, God, I don't trust you. I don't like you. You don't know me. You don't understand me. You don't care about me. So sin is disobeying God's command. Sin is an act of distrust in God our creator, but there's more. Sin is an act of treason against God. Have you ever wondered, why did God say not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, why that tree? Why not say the mango tree? It's a mango tree, after all. Wouldn't that be tragic if you couldn't eat that? 
Why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because to eat from that tree is to seek to take the place of God, to dethrone him from his place. To have the knowledge of good and evil is to have the knowledge to decide for myself what is right and what is wrong and to take God's place. Treason. It's the highest crime in a kingdom. It often carries with it the death penalty in countries that have the death penalty or life in prison for those that don't. It says to God, get out. We don't want you here. And really, that's at the heart of all sin. Sin is saying to God, rack off. I don't want you here. Let me be the one who rules my life. And the arrogance of such a thought in the face of God is culpable. But there's one last thing, as if that's not enough. One last thing I want to highlight from Genesis 3 about sin. And that is that sin is to side with the devil. Adam and Eve were given a choice. Trust God or trust Satan. And they trusted Satan. We like to think that we're neutral territory, that we're on the neutral side, between good and evil, like Switzerland in World War II. We're on no one side, neither good nor bad, just in between, a mix of good, a mix of bad. We can choose whose side we're on, but our sin makes it crystal clear whose side we're on, and it's not on God's side. To side with sin, to sin is to side with Satan. When Peter, the disciple, he pulled Jesus aside after Jesus had said to him that he would die. He would lay down his life. And Peter pulled him aside and rebuked him. Jesus said this to Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. It's a very in-the-face thing to say to Peter, isn't it? But he goes on. He said that because you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter was a tool of Satan because he tempted Jesus to avoid the cross and this was the approach of the world, of humanity, because the ways of humanity are aligned with the ways of Satan. We have joined Satan's rebellion in our sin. But Genesis 3 not only unpacks for us what sin is, it also displays the ways in which we normally respond to our sin, when we're confronted with it either by others or by even God himself. And what we see in Adam and Eve, I'm sure you'll recognise as your own response to sin, because I know that's what I recognise when I see it in myself. So just quickly, we, we see, what do we do? Well, Adam and Eve, what did they do? They, they sought to flee the scene of the crime and pretend it never really happened. God confronts Adam in the garden and asks where he is. And Adam doesn't front up and, and say what happened. No, he hides. He says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He doesn't, doesn't face up to his sin. He hides and runs. He and Eve cover up the depth and the seriousness of their sin with half-truths and incomplete truths. What were the words of Adam when God asked if he'd eaten from the tree that he explicitly commanded that they must not eat from? What did he say? The woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Notice he's glossing over the fact that he was with her the whole time, watching the whole thing unfold, watching Satan tempt Eve, being tempted himself and doing nothing. He omits that fact. He takes no responsibility. But in this statement by Adam is another classic response to sin. You know, the blame game. It wasn't me. She started it. 
Actually, did you notice in the words of Adam that he not only blames Eve, he blames God. The woman you put here with me, she tempted me. She gave me the fruit. Everything was awesome, God, until you put her here. And we, we shake our head at Adam and maybe even laugh a bit at the stupid blame game that he plays. But in doing so, we're shaking our head at ourselves because we do exactly the same thing. And so we turn to God and we say, it's all his fault after all. If you didn't do this if, or if you didn't allow that, if this didn't happen or if he weren't like that, then, then we wouldn't have a problem. And so we minimise the seriousness of our sin and we justify ourselves at the expense of others. And we make out it's no biggie after all. And we fail to take our role in this act of treason with any seriousness. But not only do we see in this account the nature of what sin is and the way that we normally respond to it, we also see God's response to sin as well. Firstly, God isn't fooled by our sin or our excuses. He knows what we have done. He knows our sin. He knows our hearts. He knew Adam's. And he knows ours. Jeremiah says this in, in uh, Jeremiah 12, verse 3. He says, Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and you test my thoughts about you. That's a bit of a squirmy thought, isn't it? That God knows our thoughts and tests them. He knows the secret motives. He knows the selfish reasons why I do the good things I do. He knows those secrets, those things that we wish we could hide from others, we, 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 we do hide from others, that we think nobody sees, God sees. God knows. But not only does God know about our sin, he punishes it with death. At the end of Genesis 3, God booted Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of his presence. And since that day, every single human died. He pours out his fury, his wrath at our willful rebellion against him. Our sin makes God angry and brings his judgment. And we might think that his judgment, this punishment is harsh and over the top, but it's not. It's actually right. It's fair. God's judgment, God's curse fits the crime. He knows how to curse and judge in a way that appropriately punishes the sin that we do. We reject God, we want him out of our life, and his punishment is to give us what we ask for, life without him. But life without God, the source of life itself, is life without life. It's death. He is the one who has given life, and he has a right to take it away again when we high-handedly commit treason against him and turn our backs on him. As I said at the start, that the Bible is like a mirror. When we read through the sin of Adam and his response to sin, and Eve's as well in the garden, we need to see that we're looking at ourselves. And really, the rest of the history of Israel is like looking into a mirror as well. Just think about Israel at Mount Sinai, and they make a golden calf, and they bow down and worship this idol and say that this is the God that brought, it out, brought us out of Egypt, when it was the Lord God who saved them, who brought them to the Red Sea, who brought them to Mount Sinai and thundered his words from the mountain. And when we see that, we read that, we might feel like saying to them, you idiots, like, can't you see what you're doing? 
Don't you know that those dumb golden calves didn't save you? Why worship them? When we react like that, we need to realise we're looking at ourselves. Their sin is our sin. Their idolatry is our idolatry. When we see the sin of the people who killed Jesus at the cross, let's take that example, who, who nailed him to the cross, his friends who abandoned him and left him to die to save their skins. And we cry, how? How could you do that to Jesus? How could you treat God like that? Well, you know what? If I were there, I would have done it too. I would have been calling out with the crowd, crucify, crucify. I would have abandoned him as well. Their sin's my sin, and their sin is yours. Every time I say to God, listen, God, I know better. I know what your word says, but I just don't feel like doing it today. I show the same attitude to God that they showed to God, to Jesus that day. Rack off, God. Let me live my life my way. And when we look in the mirror of God's word, and we read what Jesus said about the human heart in Mark chapter 7, we know it's true. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, we might not be guilty of all these particular sins, but the sin at the heart of every single one of them is the same sin that resides in us. Every time we lie, or lust, or act or speak out of arrogance or malice, we display the evidence that this description of us is right on the money. The heart of our problem is the heart of our sin. And even though we might do good things to people, we do. None of us treat God in the way that he deserves, and our relationship with him is the most important of all. So when we read passages that damn the human condition, that, that tar us with this terrible brush of sin, we need to realise that what it says is true. The reason we struggle with the descriptions that we read in the Bible of the human condition is, is not because they're not true, it's because we don't appreciate the depths of what we've done to God. And we minimise and excuse the nature of what we do to others. But why have I spent a whole talk devoted to this topic of our unholiness in a series on holiness? Well, there's three reasons, really. Firstly, we need to see the terrible nature of our sin because when it comes to holiness, we need to appreciate that there is no easy fix. Unless we appreciate the seriousness of our problem of sin, we will easily fall into thinking that holiness is not hard work, that we can achieve the holy life if only we just try a little bit harder, trust a little bit more. Working at our holiness will always be hard work because we'll always be battling with our broken human nature. Here's a passage that helps us appreciate this even more. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We need to recognise our capacity to self-justify, to excuse, to make our own practice of sin right for ourselves. That's something, we'll all, that's something that will always make holiness hard work. 
Second thing, this truth about our unholiness helps us to appreciate that when it comes to holiness, only God can do it. Holiness is a miraculous work of the living God. That's true in salvation. We are unable to save ourselves. We are unable to pay the penalty for the way that we treated God. And this is why in conversations with people who seek to find out more about God, we need to help them understand that what these passages say about them is true. But also in ongoing holiness, unless God works this wonderful miracle of ongoing changed life, then then we won't change. This truth about ourselves, about our own sin, needs to drive us to seek God's help in this hard work of holiness. Holiness is a work of God in us. But that doesn't mean that we then sit back and just watch God do all the work and, and us do nothing. No. Rather, have a look at this passage, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We work hard at holiness because we know that God is working powerfully to change us. The two go hand in hand. And we'll explore more about this in the last two talks in this series. Thirdly, finally, we need to recognise this truth about our unholiness so that we appreciate even more the holiness, the wonder, the glory of God as displayed once for all in the cross. In the cross, we see the compassion of God, among many other things. He sees us in a helpless state, unable to save ourselves, and he takes the initiative. He acts to save. He brings us life and forgiveness and hope and eternal relationship with him. But this amazing truth about God revealed at the cross is seen even more clearly when we appreciate the reality and the depth of that problem of sin and God's right response of fury and anger and curse and judgment. You see, God doesn't just have mercy on the helpless. Because in our sin, we are not just helpless. We are enemies. So God has compassion on his enemies on those who spurned his love, who rejected his care, who turned out, we turned our back on him, we betrayed his trust, we sided with his enemy and became his enemies ourselves. When we think of God's compassion on us as a sinner, we shouldn't compare it to the compassion we might feel for the, for the broken and hungry and destitute. Rather, we need to compare it with the compassion we so rarely see, the compassion that might be shown to an enemy. It's the unheard of compassion of, say, a Taliban fighter on a member of the US Army in Afghanistan or the other way around. That is a picture of the depth of the love and compassion of God at the cross. And it's that that, that we'll turn to next time. The solution to our unholiness in the face of God's holiness, the solution of the cross. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the mirror that is your word, as we read passages like Genesis 3, Mark 7, Romans 3, and we're confronted with our sin, 
and the way that we treated you. Father, we are sorry. We are deeply sorry. Sorry for the ways that we have not trusted you. We have disobeyed your command. Father, forgive us. And Father, thank you. Thank you that in your compassion, you loved us, your enemies, and acted to save us, to once again make us your children. As Romans says, we were worthless because we turned our back on you, who gave us worth. But in Christ, you make us worthy. Father, help us to let that drive us to holy living. Help us to make that, help us appreciate the wonder of what you have done. Help us to come to you, that you would do that great work of holiness in our lives. And help us to do that hard work with you. Change us, mould us, make us more like you, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll see you next week.